welcome to Our Social Impact, brought to you by the Prison Scholar Fund. The Prison Scholar Fund's mission is to provide education and employment assistance to help currently and formerly incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of reincarceration. The PSF also advocates for reform in correctional education to increase opportunity for all. As a nonprofit, we rely on investments, volunteers, and are always looking for board members to champion our mission. Please connect with us through our website at prisonscholars.org, where you can find volunteer opportunities, make a contribution, and learn about becoming a board member. You can also email us at info at prisonscholars.org and find us through most social media platforms at Prison Scholars. Become a patron by supporting us directly at Patreon with at Prison Scholars. We appreciate your review of this podcast through whatever platform you listen through. Without further ado, here's Dirk Van Velsen, founder and CEO of the Prison Scholar Fund. So welcome to our social impact. Today we have Quentin Williams. Um, I, I work for um, Heartland Alliance. I'm a campaign manager here at uh, Heartland Alliance yep. in our research and policy division. So tell me all about that and how you ended up here. Wow, how I ended up here. That's a long, long story. But um, so I was, I'm also a, a, PhD, a PhD candidate right now in the Department of Sociology at Loyola University of Chicago. And I, um, when, you know, over the, in the summer months, I would find somewhere to work because my fellowship was only for nine months. So um, it just came across my email, Heartland Alliance. Um, I had already been doing some organizing work and policy work. And, um, and I love research, obviously, because nobody does a PhD without loving that. And it came across my email like, hey, research and policy, here's what we're looking for. And I came here and I actually started as an intern um, about four or five years ago. I can't, I don't even remember how long I've been here. But um, I started off as an intern on the Social Impact uh, Research uh, Center team, and I just never left. Um, since then. So I went from an intern to a fellow to a field building project manager to now um, a campaign manager for um, a campaign that I'll tell you all about. Interesting. So usually yeah. a PhD means you want to teach. So do you, is that your <laughs> end goal or do you just want to hit no. the pinnacle of education? No, 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 no. I love teaching. Um, and in fact, me coming here was like evidence that I did not want to be a tenure track professor, right? Um, because I didn't know at the time how you can use research to um, really impact um, things that are happening in, you know, society, in, in community. So when I got here at Heartland, I saw research use, being used for a different purpose, right? Like, so in academia, you know, no shade to academia. I mean, I, I write journal articles and things like that uh, periodically, but that's not all I want to do. I want my research to, like, actually um, inform services that people receive in communities or actually um, detangle some of the issues that some of our communities face. So the answer to that is no, I do not want to be a tenure track professor. However, though, I do love teaching, so I think I'll always get my teaching fix somehow, some way, like at least part-time. I'm not teaching now because I'm currently writing a dissertation, so I don't have time for it. Yeah. 
So what did you publish? And do you enjoy publishing? I do. So I've published uh, two articles. One um, article that I published, the first one that I published with uh, Jill Fisher, who's at the University of North Carolina. Um, we published an article about phase one clinical trials, actually. <laughs> Sounds weird, but... Um, Sounds clinical. Yeah. But, but, the, but the, the reason why I jumped on that project was because we the way because i was a research assistant for her and she was doing these qualitative interviews and in them people described the conditions of the clinic like prison and i was like wow so they were Sounds familiar it. exactly so they were comparing it to prison so we ended up writing an article um discussing because the phase one clinical trials are supposedly voluntary right oh, yeah clinical trials about what was a subject yeah well so phase one clinical trials number one you have to be a healthy volunteer right so you can't have like diabetes or something like that um or any other chronic illness um um and they test this is the first phase like the first people who test it these are the folks right so um it, it's really quite risky right however here's the catch they pay very well so guess who's uh, often taking advantage of it P people who are poor uh, formerly incarcerated folks because they don't do background checks right oh interesting yeah so a lot of people who then you know enroll in these clinical trials describe the conditions in the clinic um, as prison so we found that very interesting so we ended up writing an article called captive to the clinic um, and I can um, send that to you, um, you know, send it out to your network. It's really interesting. And then the one that I just got, just got accepted for publication. Um, I put actually put it on the formerly incarcerated graduates network. So go check that out. Um, it's it's about um, the burden of post incarceration life. So the title of the article is called "What's After Good." The the premise of the article. You probably know a lot of people that have come home from prison that are doing pretty well. Like in in terms of like all the outward markers of success, like um, a job, um, maybe a place to live, and you know they volunteer at a church or something like that. So, um, what me and my co-author uh, found in in the work that we did was that even when people um, sort of the barriers. So we, we try to push the field like beyond just the barriers framework and sort of switch it to a burden framework because the barrier framework assumes that once the barriers are removed that the burden is gone of being a formerly incarcerated person. And we found through our work that even when people had employment, even when they had all these things, they still had to deal with this underlying permanent status of a formerly incarcerated person that just made life difficult for them. So, and, and how would that manifest? Like, if all the barriers are down? Perfect. Uh, look, you give me this. Uh, that's a layup, man. Like, that's the article <laughs> about. That's what the article's about. So it manifested that we see, and we pro it probably manifests in more ways, but it manifested in three uh, ways in our uh, work. So it was um, judgment, right? It manifested just in constant judgment. For example, one of the um, anecdotes that we bring up in the article is that this gentleman, this is a pseudonym, Jose, right? He's in the community, he's doing community work, and um, he is working with uh, kids who are, you know, in gangs and things like that, and they knew his past. You know, he's doing all this work, like, for the community, but he talked to us about how even folks in the community still looked at him, even when he was with the kids, they were still looking at him like, oh, I thought you changed your life. Why are you hanging with gangbangers? Are oh, you still a gangbanger? So no kidding. Huh. This, this persistence of judgment still remain, and we have many more examples in the article. The other one is exploitation, right? So, and, and 
you can probably relate to this, right? Formerly incarcerated people always being asked to do shit for free, right? And <laughs> coming to volunteer, right? Because we we are so often, especially when we first get out, we're just bogged down with this um, desire to let people know that we are not what we used to be. So we do all kinds of things like community organizing, volunteering, and you know, people take advantage of that. Um, but another manifestation of that is just housing. Like, so people are desperate for housing, so they're putting in these rental applications. And folks know, landlords know that they're not going to um, house them, but they take the rental application fee. They take the seventy five dollars fee or whatever. Yeah, they keep taking it, right? So, yeah, like, it, like in Seattle, we have the ban the box for for yeah. housing. Do you not have that in Chicago? No. Not, not really, not but we just passed a um, here a just housing amendment, but there's still a fight going on around that because, again, it's a big fight, man. Um, like seeing formerly incarcerated people as risk, that just really never changes, unfortunately. Um, and, but because we got to do some more work, sort of on a cultural side, like we can change laws and things like that, but we need some narrative change about this distinction between good people and bad people. And then the, the last thing in the article that we point out was these competing demands, right? So you got your probation officer, you got your, you know, uh, y- your job, you have you're trying to volunteer at three different places and and then and this manifests even differently for women too uh, we found out because my co-author she um, interviewed mostly women so it was really interesting to see all the competing demands that um, women had and particularly poor and um, black women um, what they had to deal with dealing with all these different systems right Department of Child and Family Services uh, probation uh, recovery homes and all that like just all these competing demands where people that are formerly incarcerated, they feel like they have to be entangled in all of that in order to present their goodness to the world, right? But it's an increasing burden, like, on their back. So um, we have some suggestions on how to get around it. At first, it's just acknowledging that, is that when somebody has a job, yes, we should celebrate, but we should also, um, you know, go a little bit further and talk about um, and push back against the this permanent status that formerly incarcerated people um, endure long after they're gone and long after they've successfully so-called navigated reentry. Interesting. So, you know, you and I met at the Just Leadership sure. USA Leadership Development Program. Yeah. I'm interested to hear uh, your journey there and also mm-hmm. about Loyola. That's a great university. And yeah, it is. It what is, was your path is. there? So, um, I think... My story starts on the west side of Chicago. That's where I'm from. That's where we are right now. We ain't on the west side right now. We downtown, right? We are with the bougie people. But, nah. <laughs> <laughs> but so my my journey started on the west side of Chicago, a neighborhood called Humboldt Park, and um, you know I was just like pretty much like you know any other kid. In fact, well, not really. I was a nerd, right? Like so, my neighborhood had all these things going on, um, gangs, drugs, violence, you know those types of things, but. You know, I was the kid who, you know, got straight A's. So my mom still has a um, a report card from, you know, third grade with straight A's. I nice. was winning spelling bees and all that shit, man. You know, I was, you're that guy. I, I am, like, you know, and and and, you know, but I had a challenge, and my challenge was that. Um, you know, there was this voice in my head that was a whisper at first that it grew increasingly loud, and that voice was just saying, "Nobody cares." 
right? And and it just got louder. And what contributed to that voice uh, saying that nobody cares was that, you know, I had two parents who dealt with, like, substance use issues. And it, I don't know if you um, know anybody or yourself have, you know, dealt with anybody with substance use issues, but the, the addiction becomes more important than anything, including the children sometimes. So that was one facet. But also I lived in a neighborhood that, um, you know, didn't have a lot of resources in our school. Our books were you know, torn, we didn't have basketball uniforms, and then my community was was police everywhere, you know what I mean? Like, so everything around me signaled to me that nobody cares, and then that created some dissonance in me because, like, I'm doing all this good stuff, I'm getting straight A's, I'm getting spelling B's, but yet still nobody cares. So when that voice got too loud to ignore, I was 15, and that's when I, um, I dropped out of high school at 15, sophomore year, even though I was on progress to even graduate early right because again school has never been a problem for me but I felt like at that moment it was like I'm a 15 year old kid nobody cares well fuck it neither do I so I just left school and then just hit the streets and at the time I didn't know it but um I became a statistic um Bruce Western has um, a study that shows that um, in a cohort of black males who are born in a certain period of time who drop out of high school, one in three of them can expect to find themselves under correctional control, right? One in three. Now, Bruce Western, he's a professor from Harvard, right? Correct. He's at Columbia now. Oh, is he so, at Columbia now? Well, I think he's still at Harvard, but I think he's like he's just temporarily all, at Columbia. He's right? all over the place. I, um, yeah, I became that statistic. So, like, 15, so when I dropped out, then as soon as I became in Illinois, like when you're 17, they can charge you as an adult. So as soon as I turned 17, you know, I was on my way to, well, not long after I turned 17, I was on my way to a state penitentiary. Um, and I, I'll never forget that, man. I was on my way down the bus. I had been in the county jail for like six months because I couldn't bond out. But like, I'm on a bus and this dude looks at me. He's like, what are you doing on this bus? You don't even got no hair on your face. You know what I mean? And I was just like, because it was true. I was a baby. You know what I mean? Like, and I didn't um, even understand at the time what I had gotten myself into. So anyway, that was the first uh, encounter with prison. And then that just led to multiple subsequent encounters of rest. And then I had um, another And what were you doing at that point when you said you hit the streets you? Selling drugs or drugs, um, just, everything, just gang banging, every drugs, gang affiliation, um, yeah, just whatever, man, like whatever it, uh, it took to get. So, so it wasn't just one thing. You have a whole list of. Yeah, yeah. I got a whole. <laughs> no, nah, I just wasn't one charge, right? Like yeah. I have viol- some violent, um, so-called violent things in my background and drugs, mostly drugs, and I think. You know, that was just me trying to find something, right? Like, I was just trying to find something to be, something to do, like, something, an identity, and that's what I was looking for. And I found it to some degree out there because while my um, straight A's and all that stuff wasn't really being validated, when I got out in the street and it was, like, the baddest shit you can do, like, that shit got you pats on the back. And it was, like, in fact, when I got out of prison the first time when I was 17, it was, like, I became, like, this this yeah, re- legend rep. within my yeah. circle, right? It's like, oh, you've been you've been to jail, and it's been, you made it out, and, oh, what's up? Welcome home, right? You know what I mean? It's, like, all of that is playing into... Because that's your reference group at this time. Yeah, it yeah. was, man. And then, um, but the last, my last incarceration, right, when I got... Um, seven years for um, a drug case. Um, I remember I had this moment. So, you know, that was my challenge. But then I came to 
you know, I was on my bunk at at, at night and, 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 you know, feeling the, you know, the, the comfy springs on my back, you know, <laughs> with the thin mattress and, um, you know, smelling the, 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 the sweet scent of 80 plus men in the dorm room at night. And I was just staring at the ceiling, man. And I had this moment where I just was like, you know what? So that voice that was saying nobody cares, that was I, in that moment, I don't really know what happened. I was listening to something inspirational, I think, on my headphones. Some something. Tony Robbins so, speech or something. Know, man. Something, man. <laughs> it was some preacher, pastor, something. But, like, you know, I just made a decision right there. I chose to, like, if nobody else is going to care, I'm going to care. And I was like, I'm going to care even in here. Because at that time, I still had, like, another year and a half, two years to do um in inside so i was like i don't know how i'm gonna do it like in here but i was like you know what i'm gonna start taking i'm gonna he, care about you just me. hit that moment where like fuck yeah. this i'm, was up, I'm like, changing i'm looking around man i gotta get the fuck out of here how did i get here right <laughs> this so, is this is where i want to be yeah man so i kid you not though the next day the very next day um i get a letter from the institution saying that i have been approved for uh, work release how about the that? The very fucking next day. Like, and, and it was a long shot, too, because I had a violent offense in my background, and then I had the worst type of drug felony that you can have, a Class X felony for the, um, which is the same, like, class. It's, like, murder and stuff like that for drugs, right, which huh. is crazy. Is that, like, selling a school zone or what makes it so bad? The amount. Oh, a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you're I, pretty industrious out there. Yeah. <laughs> That's why nah. you're getting all the props? Nah, nah, nah. But, like, so... Yeah, man. So I took that as a sign. I'm like, oh shit, right? Like I made yeah. this choice last night, and then it's like now someone heard you. I can get for real. So I took that seriously. So you know, it was a journey. But then, so when I got out, it's kind of like I picked up where I left off. I had ended up getting my GED like somewhere in my incarceration. But when I got out, um, I had a lot of support and help, and I went back to school. And then I got, I went and got my associate's degree from a community college. Um, and then I always had people at each stage encouraging me to go to the next stage. So folks, the professors at the community college was like, "Yo, you should go to, you know, transfer, get your bachelor." So now you I have a different re- different reference group, and you're yeah. still rocking the straight A's. I bet rocking it, man. I'm killing it. All these kids, I tell people all the time, like I'm like twenty mid twenties in college. All these kids are worried about what's going on on the dorm and shit. I've been to prison twice, yeah. so my focus is a little bit different. You know, it, what I isn't mean? it funny? Like after dealing with issues in prison, like nothing really. <laughs> nothing. It's like, like I'm like yo, I could do this. This is easy. Man. You know what I mean? Like it was so easy. So um, you know, I, I did that. You found, your, my you found your spot. Degree. I did, man. Got my bachelor's degree because that was always in me. Though I always was in, in, intrigued by the world, intrigued by books. I can sit and read every day, all day, if I could. Um, Malcolm X has this quote, like he can. I forget how it goes, but it's something about he can get lost in books or something like that. I feel the same way. So then I got my master's degree. And then again, like hey, I told where, you, next where's your year, master's from? Loyola. Also, because yeah. I got um, accepted into the PhD program as a, um, with my BA. So you get the master's degree on the way to on the track, um, yeah. PhD. So and then in 2020, man, I'm gonna be like Dr. Williams. It's crazy. How about to that? Think about. Um, so so that that was my journey to Loyola. And then when I got to Loyola, one of the professors had reached out to me, who was on the application committee. He sends me this weird email, right? Because he's kind, you know. Anyway, but he sends me this weird email like, hey, I saw your application. We need to talk. And I'm like, oh, uh, what does this mean? <laughs> you know, I'm like, because I know I, I disclose my you yeah. know, uh, criminal history. And, is he trying to recruit you or does he yeah, have bad I news? I don't know. Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So I get to his office and he's like, it was a complete opposite. Though. He was like, man, I saw your application. And I was like, we had to have you. <laughs> he was like super uh, like telling me how he was advocating for me. And then. 
what he did was he was like, I got some people in Chicago that you need to meet. And then that's what introduced me to um, the organizing and advocacy world um, about six, seven years ago. That's how I met Marlon Chamberlain, a 2019 fellow. Um, and I remember the first like meeting, community meeting I went to, they were talking about removing barriers to employment in schools for people with records. And I'm, 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 they had like a printout of a section of the piece of legislation. And I, I remember it was like just this eye-opening moment for me when I looked. And I was like, wow, like this is actually on paper. Like this thing that it's impacted my life is like, I cannot work in a school, and it's right here on paper, legitimized, and this is bullshit. Like, so from that point on, like, that was why. You had something to bite your teeth into. Yeah, right? man. I was like, oh, man. I So now I'm like a policy junkie because I'm like, yo, this this is the type of thing that, like, and, and, I, and I vowed to myself. I was like, I can't believe I didn't even know anything about this. I didn't know how laws and policies worked, and now. Um, you know, I've really dedicated my life, you know, the, the remainder of my life to, like, really um, change some of those things that are on paper, man, that are hard to get rid of once they're in practice and in law. Um, so now, you know, that's that's really what I'm, what I'm doing now. That's where I'm at now. That's what I've been doing for the past, um, you know, six, seven years is really um, trying to remove those barriers that we face when we come out because it's bullshit. Nice. Yeah. Is what do you, is that what you do at Heartland here? Yeah. So now uh, my roles have you know, kind of shifted a little. bit. Yeah. Maybe even talk a little bit about what Heartland does. Heartland does a lot, man. I don't. I don't know if I can capture it like in, in one. But essentially, there's uh, a, a few companies. There's been around for over a um, hundred years. One of the oldest uh, nonprofits here in Chicago. Most of our work provides uh, direct services to folks who are experiencing homelessness. Um, um, people returning from incarceration, people who are chronically unemployed. We have housing, Heartland Housing, Heartland Health, Heartland Alliance International, Heartland Human Care Services. A lot of stuff. Yeah, so it's like, it's a huge, huge agency, but a a human rights agency, right? And I think that was the framework that really got me excited about being a part of this organization because I think at the core of the the criminal justice reform movement is I think that's what it's about like this centering of humanity of individuals who may have done things or may not have done things but who have been cast in a certain light and then you know other people and institutions have been given license to treat them as less than humans you know so part of my policy work and why I am striving so hard to get policies changed because I feel like I, I really truly believe that policies speak they speak to you. They say things to us. They communicate to us, like who we are and what we're, what what our value is. Like when a person with a record sees that he can't go, he or she can't go volunteer in their child's school. Like they can't be like go with them on a school trip because of you know what I mean. Like that communicates that one marker to you. Yeah, it says like, wow, I am not worthy enough to be here or something like that so it's just like 
Yeah, so the underlying humanity is, is what I'm all about. So what I, you know, that's what I do now, man. And I think as a uh, the campaign manager, the, the position that I just stepped into. So over the past, mm, since 2014, Heartland has been part of a coalition called the Rocky Coalition, uh, R-R-O-C-I, the Restoring Rights and Opportunities Coalition of Illinois. And we've been able to, through that coalition, um, you know, pass... Um, each year since 2014, significant pieces of legislation that would um, remove some barriers uh, to employment and housing uh, for folks with records. Um, and that just to give a shout out to my my my, my partners, man. They that those agencies that we work with um, in collaboration with our Community Renewal Society, um, Cabrini Green Legal Aid and Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, and it's made up of community organizers, policy folks, and uh, directly impacted uh, leaders from the community, right? And we make sure that we center that voice so we don't even do a policy change without the input, and not even just input, like we won't do it. Like we, we hear from people, what are the barriers, what do you want? What, what do you need? And then we, we kind of craft something based off of that. So we've been winning every year, but you know, like my colleague Melissa said, she said, if we just go, you know, one by one every year, we'll all be dead before all the collateral <laughs> consequences are gone because we have in Illinois roughly about, about 14, 1500 collateral consequences across a bunch of different sectors. So um, we are now in the process of campaign that um, I'm managing now. It doesn't have a name yet coming soon, but like, um, what we're trying to do is build power, build coalition, um, and build a, a broad table both locally and nationally to really here in the state of Illinois take a big chunk out of the collateral consequences. So putting a bunch of bills in one and it's not like sort of like an omnibus legislation. So that's going to take a lot of energy, yeah. a lot of time, a lot of money, and um, we're just beginning that process now. So You said you identified 1,400? Yeah. And then how do you like, kind of how do you triage it? How do you identify which ones to approach first? Sounds like you know housing and jobs yeah. would be priorities. We don't know yet. I mean, as part of um, you know, we got some funds to do like a planning, a year of planning. So part of the this year of planning is to do that. So we'll be doing some extensive research um, in the code, Illinois code, to see what uh, what we're dealing with actually in the end I think we'll make the decision based off of that but also in conjunction with you know what formerly incarcerated people in Illinois are facing because I, I do want to say another thing too like this is not just a Chicago thing that formerly incarcerated people all across the state of Illinois um, in fact the latest um, numbers that we have there's like about 50 percent of Illinois residents have some type of criminal record it's half yeah. Right. Like wow. some rather arrest or some some kind of right? involvement. Yeah. So that's half the population. Half the state. Right? So it's just like it's just a no brainer. So really thinking through, right? Like how to make this not just a Chicago thing and and then make this a, a statewide thing. So I think we have some great opportunities though. So you mentioned you got funding for this work. Who who pays for this kind of? <laughs> I don't know. Can I say? No, we um, are one of the. It's public, so it's fine. Uh, one of the Art for Justice. Um, grantees from the Ford Foundation. Cool. Are you the one that writes the grants, or is there a different team that does that? And you just do the work. Uh, are you trying to get me to write some grants for you? <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. No, I, I participated in the process. It was a collaborative process um, to really to really get it done. 
Yeah. It's funny when you talk about the collateral consequences, a lot of people, you know, they have kind of a bias against prisoners. Mm. But I think some research came out of Berkeley where they they figured out that 92% of Americans have all done something that would land them in prison. Of course. But they just haven't been caught or they had, you know, great legal representation. Absolutely. So when people think, you know, prisoners are the other ones, you know, like most of Americans have done something. Yeah. But we just criminalize everything. And then when they finally get you, yeah. you know, you end up in prison. Yeah, no, I would love to get that study, man. Like yeah, I'll forward it on. It to me, um, I think that's part of the narrative change that we need to, because I think that's what it is, man. It's just like, if you can, like, the bad guys over there, like, as long as we have prisons and jails, like, we can always pretend like we're better than we actually yeah, are. That's the other group. Yeah. The like out they, group. Yeah, we don't, we don't, you know, that those are, that, that's what they do. That's what the bad people do, yeah. right? But, you know, we're, you know what I mean? Like, it's just a way to make this, um, quite frankly, this bullshit dichotomy between good people yeah. and bad people, because there's no such thing. Until they realize, hey, I was a club kid, I was doing some X one time, and that, uh, well, you're a felon. You could have been. Could have been. You get caught as possession. And, and maybe, depending on where you were and who you were with, they could have enhanced it with all types of bullshit. Yeah. You know? so, yeah, I'd yeah. love to see the day that you have, too, about the, the collateral consequences. I hear all sorts of, mm. a lot of people are doing that work, yeah, trying man. to figure out. We are trying to figure it out. I think, And I think it's really a under, um, like, we need to put more force behind it, because I think we're doing a lot around um, sentencing, which is good. Like, we're trying on the front end, you know, trying to get people to, you know, like a lot on juvenile justice, right? Trying to like prevent people from even going in the system. People who are already in the system, like how, you know, um, sentencing reform, get them out of there. But then um, also conditions of prisons, right? Trying to like do, do, do things in that arena and also with bail and bond reform. So, um, but I just think it's hard, like collateral consequences is going to be hard because, you know, you have all these intersecting interests, right? Like you have business associations, you have realtors associations, you have, you know, all these people with a lot of money, quite frankly, and, and pretty strong lobbies in each one of our states um, that then, um, you know, wield a great deal of power and influence over our elected officials. So uh, we're going to have to contend with that so, all right yeah. so of course i met you at the just leadership thing what was your what was your path there how did they scoop mm. you up mm. good question and, i ended up and which uh, which cohort were you in the best cohort 2018 um <laughs> it was really i mean it's, you know yeah, just, just look it up you'll see you'll see the superstars you know um so uh, i think i had met i had met um Glenn Martin like digitally right like I hadn't met him in person yet um, but we ended up doing like a webinar together about um, um, how to incorporate uh, formerly incarcerated people in um, advocacy work so we had and, and Glenn Martin is the guy that started JLUSA he is he's the founder brilliant mind brilliant man um, just an incredible mind is he out of New York or Chicago I can't I believe remember. He's in, I believe he's in New York. New York. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he. I met him, and then I had um, another one of my colleagues who is um, part of one of the organizations uh, from the Rocky Coalition. She was a 2016 fellow. So, not, not the best cohort. Nah, nah, nah. She, you know, it was save cool. that for 2018. It was cool. Yeah, 2018. Got it. But the the. So, yeah, she told me about it, and I met Glenn, and it just seemed right, man. You know, I think I've never, ever, 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 ever seen um, any institution, quite frankly, um, give that much 
investment into formerly incarcerated people. I've never seen it in terms of money, um, resources, and then actual investment. I mean, like who, what formerly incarcerated people, you know, get executive coaching, especially from David Mensa, right? Like nobody gets that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was my path. I, I applied um, and I got in and I was just excited and um, it it's really has changed my life. And now I'm part of uh, their train the trainer. So I'm, I'm being trained to train. Um, just finished the first year of that. That was pretty intense. So you I come sh- come back and be a coach, or does it be a coach in your neighborhood? Uh, yeah, of course. I, well, I already do that, right? Like I already train. I already do trainings. Um, I do trainings on, um, you know, uh, the isms, um, and I've done training on communication. I've done trainings on leadership development and things like that. So through the trainer trainer program, I've been able to really hone in, you know, my training and coaching skills and. Um, look forward to continuing to put those into practice. But, yeah, Just Leadership was life-changing for me. It still is. Like, I'm still um, part of the uh, the network. So, yeah. Cool. So other than your Ph.D. program, what, are you, what else are you working on these days? Uh, what's next for you? Oh, gosh, what's next? I don't know. Like, right now my focus is certainly on the campaign that we're building. Like, that is, like, top of mind. That is priority number one. Um, really laser focused on that. Um, writing a dissertation. My dissertation is um, examining the role of housing and security and reentry outcomes. So, oh, did you face challenges there? What was your housing situation like? Um, I got lucky, to be honest. Like, I didn't go through. Like, I saw all like the management companies and stuff like that. I saw, um, you know, the the on the management companies. Uh, applications and it's just terrifying you you know it's coming yeah it's coming so i just so happened one day and i kid you not i was walking down the street this lady was walking her dog in a neighborhood that i wanted to live in and i asked her just randomly asked her like um you know do you know of any you know places for rent around because i know sometimes the best places are not the ones that get advertised on like Zillow or something. It's like just that. a social networking it is. Yeah. So and, and and she says, and this is like the story of my life, man. She says, I'm a building manager for several <laughs> properties. And I was like, Oh, nice to meet so, you. Yeah. So we ended up forging a, a good relationship. Uh, she recently passed away. Uh, rest in peace to her because she was just such a uh, understanding. So she knew my whole story, and but she was so so like the type of people that we need she viewed you as a person she did and um she took care of me and you know when things got hard like she it was just it was just a beautiful so i got lucky and i'm still in that neighborhood and still i mean she just passed away so you know it's a new management company so i'm gonna leave when my lease is up but um and the change of policy is gonna be a different situation than you think i don't know yeah that's, that's that is to be determined i don't know so so it's interesting like sounds like you got lucky in a couple different spots, but lucky really has no, you know, luck has no role in rehabilitation or, or opportunity. Indeed. Not for everybody. It doesn't. Not everyone can get lucky. Nope. And that's why I tell my story in a way um, that does not make it seem like I'm just like Superman or something like that because I'm not. Like I'm a regular person that um, was fortunate and had a lot of support that a lot of people don't have. And what I want, what I want to see is um, everybody who's been impacted by incarceration to be able to experience all the things that I've experienced. And it's not because of, um, like, I'm some exceptional person. And it's just, just hit some good breaks. I did. I did. And some good people around me, for sure. 
the only thing that I'm working on now is just the PhD. Um, I'm writing the dissertation on housing and reentry, um, the collateral consequences work, and you know those that's 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 the focus right now. So all right, that's it. Happy Monday, Quentin Williams. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Have me back soon so I can curse some more. Sounds good. All right, All right buddy. Yeah.